Uh, So our reading this morning is from Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 28. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced, by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn, and you will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, 
But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Uh, Once a year, uh, Apple, often in California, because that's where their new base is, try to uh, feed our discontent. There is a certain discontent that is uh, rife in the world, and that is that the uh, the new is always better than the old. The old is bad and the new is going to be better. Often that is true, not always. But often that is true. It's not true with wine. Often the older is better than the new and so on. But uh, lest I reveal too many of my own interests, let's go back to Apple. Apple every year seek to just plug into the fact of their discontent that is in our hearts and around the world. So once a year or once every nine months sometimes with some of their products, they say, you need this product. It's uh, personified the device. So it says, welcome to iPad. It's not A, it's iPad. It has a persona of its own. And it's well documented how clever they are at saying the new is better than the old. And the next day after Apple or Microsoft or the new car maker has revealed a new product, they always say, welcome to the new Nissan Micra. Welcome to the Toyota product of your dreams. Becky, I'll get the plug-in for you. Welcome to the new Volvo. And they always say, through column inches and through different media outlets, Well, the old is worse than the new. Welcome to the all-new iPhone. Welcome to the all-new car. Welcome to the new season of clothes. Uh, Welcome to the new product that you desperately need. And if you have this, your life will be easier. Your future will be more bright and better. Your life will be less complicated. Because new is always better than the old. Now, in a very insufficient way, that is what is happening in the book of Hebrews. The writer who's writing the book of Hebrews is not just writing something to convince you intellectually, he's writing as a pastoral counsellor. Here you've got Christians in the first century who are desperately struggling, who are under huge persecution, and they're tempted not to embrace the new, but to go back to the old. It's a little bit like when the wheel was uh, first uh, created or realised or discovered, when you see those old black and white footage of someone trying to ride a, a square-wheeled bike bumping along. Why would you want to go back to that when you've found the wheel that's a, well, it's, it's a circle and it makes life easier and then you find the pneumatic tyre and it takes the bumps out of the road? Why on earth would you want to go back to a square wheel if ever, anybody ever rode on one of those things? The writer in the book of Hebrews is saying, do not think that the old is better than the new. Jesus is more lovely, he's more beautiful, he's more sufficient, and he's more sufficient than the angels, chapter 1 of Hebrews. He's more beautiful and sufficient and more glorious than your hero Moses, chapter 3. He's greater than Abraham. And now, in chapters 4 through to chapter 10, he says, this is, I need a new example to show you how great Jesus is. I need a new explanation, like a good teacher, for me to illustrate and teach you how magnificent and glorious Jesus Christ is. You need to understand what he has done for you. Where shall I go? I'm going to take you all the way back into Israel's history, and I'll take you to two places, to the tabernacle, that portable tent where the Israel would meet with God, and not just a tabernacle, I'm going to take you back to the temple. Because if you understand what happened in the tabernacle and in the temple, the temporary and then the permanent, if you grasp that, you will never ever be tempted to go back to the old, because Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. He's more sufficient. He's more beautiful. He's more powerful. If you grasp how real he is, you'll see that they're just a shadow in the past. That's what's happening 
in chapters 4 through 10 when Jesus in chapter 7 is compared to this strange character who appears on the pages of uh, the Bible for a very brief time called Melch, Melchizedek, if we're going to use his full name. Who is this guy, this shadowy character who appears in Genesis chapter 14 for a very short amount of stage time and then off he goes. But he's there with such a hugely important role that almost a whole chapter in Hebrews chapter 7, the author is saying, if you grasp this truth, you struggling Christians, if you grasp this reality, if you fix your eyes on this Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, you will have such ballast for your heart and soul, such hope. Because the problem is, as Christians, very often we look back to what Jesus has done. That's appropriate. But we focus on what Jesus has done at the cross. We always do that if we're exploring the Christian message. Very often we look to the future and say, because of what Jesus has done in the past, this is what he's going to achieve in the future. We look past and we look future. But this passage, if you grasp hold of it, the writer wants us to understand what Jesus is doing right now. What is Jesus doing right now at 1055 or thereabouts? What's he doing right now? This passage tells us what Jesus is doing what he's achieved in the past, what will happen in the future, that's very important. But what is Jesus doing now? It's got huge pastoral implications for our heart. Here we go, three points as always. The nature of his work. What is Jesus doing? Why can he do it? We're going to look at his credentials and then we're going to look at the results of his work as well. The nature of his work, his credentials for the work and the results. What does it produce? Number one, the nature. The nature of Jesus' work right now. We've said the book of Hebrews is a bit like cricket. If you know uh, your silly mid-off from your square leg, then you can do well and you can understand what Henry Blofeld used to say on the radio before he laid down the microphone. It's our loss and his gain. We never look at pigeons in the same way. Those of you that listen to him will know what I mean. But here we have this book in the Bible that draws a lot from uh, the Old Testament, and it's a bit like understanding cricket or learning a foreign language. We need to grasp and understand what is happening in this chapter and who on earth Melchizedek is. And so we need to go back to the temple and we need to go back to the tabernacle. Let me explain before we get to the passage. In the Old Testament, the way that God's people met with him was through a temporary and then a permanent means of tabernacle and temple. The people would pray to God for blessing. They would pray to God for help. They would pray to God with worship on their lips. But there was one person called the high priest once a year who would go into this temporary structure of tabernacle and also temple and he would go within into a, a square that was a perfect cube actually, a cuboid with curtains to make it look like the world. And he would go in on behalf of the people who were on the outside praying. He would go in and sacrifice on their behalf. He would go in on their behalf and pray for the good of the people. He would slaughter an animal. It was a bloody and gory affair on behalf of the people. He would be their representative. He would be their intermediary. He would be their advocate. And it's a gory and bloody time in the history of Israel. But there, in this temporary tent, there in this perfect cube in the temple in Jerusalem, would be the Holy of Holies, where God would literally, in a manifest way, dwell in his glory. 
He would dwell there in his Shekinah glory on top of the Ark of the Covenant, beneath the uh, wings of the cherubim. And there God would dwell on earth, and one person, once a year, that's all, would go into the fearsome purity and glory of God. It was an awesome event, once a year. He would be their mediator and pray for them and offer a, a sacrifice on their behalf. And you're saying, well, that's not really helping me understand this passage at all. Look at one verse with me, verse 25. I think the key is at the end, where it describes Jesus in one specific way after this long comparison with someone called Melchizedek. It says in verse 25, Therefore he, that's Jesus, therefore Jesus is able to save completely, or to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you a different image, a different picture to help you grasp this if you're not tracking with me. This little word at the end of verse 25 says to intercede. And let me translate from Old Testament strange smoke and uh, strange uniform and beards and blood and gore to the image of the courtroom that we all understand. This is a word from the courtroom. Now, you know in the legal sphere, in the courtroom, you would have someone like Miss Marple who would do all the hard work for you and she's there at the end of two hours and she reveals all on the train. Or you can have someone like, uh, I don't know, who's your favourite person that can represent you? Someone like Sherlock Holmes with a brilliant mind. Or L.A. Law, if you're in the 40s, you remember that TV show from the 80s. You remember the glitz and the glamour of people with eloquent lips representing a client on their behalf. You can represent yourself, but the problem is you're not qualified. You don't know the words. You don't know the legal uh, speech. You're not dressed in the right clothes. And so you employ a lawyer on your behalf. Someone whose failures will be your failures. Someone whose successes will be your successes. Someone who knows the system, who knows how it works. Someone who is your representative. Someone who is your advocate. Someone who, verse 25, intercedes for you. That's what this chapter is all about. What is Jesus doing right now? Not in the past, not in the future. What's he doing now? He's interceding for us. He's our great high priest, if you don't understand or you're not familiar with the Old Testament picture. We're hidden in him. His success is ours. His failures are ours, but he has none. His beauty is attributed to us. We are in him. So that he speaks on our behalf, he acts on our behalf, he prays on our behalf. Now why is that necessary that we need someone to represent us? We need a lawyer to speak on our behalf because the Bible describes a bar. The Bible describes a standard that none of us will be able to attain. I spoke to a man yesterday at the chip shop. That's where you can find me often on a Sunday night or Saturday night. If not Saturday, it's because we... Uh, we had some other food on a Friday. I'm normally there on a Friday, but I spoke to a man at the chip shop yesterday. Very interesting conversation that he spoke to his son in the week that's passed. And his son said, you know what, Dad? I'm never good enough. I can never meet the standard. And it broke this dad's heart. And he shared some of his own struggles with this as well. Very interestingly, that a teenage boy can articulate what each one of us struggles why often are we so defensive? Why often are we so uh, quick to look for approval in a whole host of reasons? Because the Bible says there is a standard that God has set and not one of us is righteous, no, not one. 
None of us is good enough. We can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. We do not love our neighbours as we should. We do not uh, honour God as we should. And we stand, as it were, condemned. We need an advocate. We need someone to speak on our behalf. We need someone to represent us. We need someone who knows how the legal system works. We need a great high priest. We need a lawyer. And the Bible doesn't just say that there is a bar. In this chapter that we're going to get into now, the Bible says there is an ultimate advocate. There's an ultimate bench. There's an ultimate throne. There's an ultimate standard. There's an ultimate trial. And in Jesus, well, he's greater than Melchizedek. And he's the ultimate advocate that we need. Let's look at his credentials, number two. That's the nature of his work. Jesus is there interceding for us like the great high priest. He's there as a lawyer speaking on our behalf, knowing how the legal system works so that we're in him. How? What credentials has Jesus got? Is he any good at his job? Let's look closely at the passage. We're going to do this more in life groups on Tuesday, just to warn you. But look at the first three sentences with me of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. As I said, we're introduced to a man called Melchizedek. We obviously haven't got time to go through this pretty intricate argument together. But look at verses 1 to 3 with me. We understand from these sentences, verse 1 tells us that he is a king. King of somewhere called Salem, later Jerusalem. He's also the priest of God. So we have these two huge sentences put together in sentence 1 and 2. Two thoughts that he is the king, but he's also a priest. These three big roles in the Old Testament of prophet, priest, and king. And Melchizedek holds two of those titles. Verse 2 says, This man is so exalted, he's so great, that Abraham, the father of Israel, when he sees this shadowy person that is on the, uh, on the, on the floor, on the stage for such little time, when Abraham sees him, he says, I've just won a war and I want to give you 10%. You're so great, I just want to give you a great big offering. Where's my checkbook? Where's my debit card? I want to give you my PayPal account. You're great, you're exalted. And verse 3, this strange picture, that Genesis, unlike almost any other character in the Old Testament, there's no genealogy for this man, and there's no list of his descendants. It's as if he is eternal. And he points to someone who truly is it's a little bit like Joseph Mourinho. You know, uh, Jose Mourinho, not Joseph, that's my uh, Portuguese letting me down. In 2004, Chelsea were in deep trouble. There was a lovely manager in Chelsea. I do, don't like Chelsea, so I won't be too charitable. But there was a lovely man called Claudio Ranieri, and he was doing a great job, and Joe Cole was doing a, probably having one of his best seasons ever. But the trouble was at Chelsea that there was a new owner in town, and he didn't take fools gladly. And so as much as a nice job and a nice man and gentleman uh, Ranieri was, he wanted to get a new manager in. And this manager, I have to read his name because I've forgotten it. <laughs> Mourinho came in with all the credentials you could want. He was an exalted manager. He came in with a better pay packet, 1.7 million for a year's work, thank you very much, before he won a thing with Chelsea. But he had just won the Champions League with Porto. He had just won the title with Porto. And he came in saying, I am the special one. I will show you how good I am. He came in very arrogantly, like no English manager would, because we never win anything. But he was Portuguese, so he could. And, in, and he brought in great success for Chelsea. If we have seen someone who is lesser, Melchizedek, now we're going to see someone who's greater, Jesus. And that's what happens beginning at verse 11. 
There's a long discussion about the worth and greatness of Melchizedek, who verse 1 tells us is both priest of God and also king of a geographical place called Salem, later Jerusalem. But now, verse 11, if Melchizedek had been perfect, there would be no need for someone greater, but he wasn't. Here's Jesus' credentials, beginning at verse 27 at the end of the passage. Here are just two because of time. Why is Jesus our perfect advocate? Why is he the greater high priest, the one to whom Melchizedek pointed to? Why was Jesus needed? And why is he sufficient? Verse 27, because he's perfect. He's perfect in his holiness. Look at verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, Aaron, Melchizedek, all those sons of Levi that served Israel so well, but pointed forward to Jesus, Unlike the other high priest, verse 27, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins. Why? Because Jesus' credentials says, Jesus' CV says, he is perfect in his life. He is perfectly righteous. He has fulfilled every single requirement of the law of God. He is without sin. He's never failed. He's been tempted in every way that every human ever will be, but he and he alone is without sin. And therefore, his credential says he has lived a perfect life, so he can intercede on our behalf. But here's what's unique. He never offers a sacrifice for his own sins, like every high priest of the Old Testament would have to do. Why? Because he's perfect, not just in his life. He's perfect in holiness, but also he's perfect in his eternity, you could say. He is forever perfect. And therefore, that's the first credential that means he can, he can go before us without offering once a sacrifice for his own life because he's sinless in his life. Here's the second characteristic, the second credential. Why is Jesus perfect to be our advocate and high priest? Here's number two. Because he has an absolutely infallible case he has an infallible case. It says that in verse 27 again. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all. Jesus just didn't live a perfect life. He comes before the bar, the standard of God's holiness and perfection, with a perfect and sufficient case. Sometimes if you watch, um, I don't know, The Good Wife or L.A. Law or another legal kind of drama or soap, you know sometimes there's someone who hasn't got the greatest case. They know their client is guilty, so they have to resort to the bag of tricks of experience. So there's a bit of a, there's, they try and pull a rabbit out of the hat. There's some kind of histrionics, or there's a bit of um, hysterics. There's some blackmail. Perhaps they bribe somebody who uh, is uh, going to give witness. A witness disappears. Perhaps evidence crucial to the case, that goes missing. There's none of that with Jesus because he lived a perfect life and he has the perfect case. Verse 27 tells us that. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all. Not only did he have to not offer anything for himself, he comes before the bar with the perfect sufficient case of his own life. He is not only the advocate, but he's also the sacrifice, says verse 27, and into chapter 10 that we'll look at in a few weeks' time. What do I mean? Here is Jesus standing before the bar. His father is the judge in the courts and of the whole earth. And he can say to his father, because of the sacrifice that I offer you, God, 
Don't give them mercy. I long for justice. Pour out your justice on me and therefore give them grace. In chapters 11 and 12 of Hebrew that we're going to look at in a month or so's time, we start to meet again a character we meet in the very first pages of the Bible. We meet Cain and Abel again. And uh, it's very interesting to say that just as Cain and Abel spoke with God, the blood of Jesus, try and follow me, speaks on our behalf in a different way. In the book of Genesis, God, if you remember, speaks to Abel and he says, where is your brother Cain? It's the first murder, excuse me, all the way around. He speaks to his brother Cain saying, where's your brother Abel? It's the first murder in the Bible. Where is Abel your brother? And, God's, and uh, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is, trying to pull a fast one to God. And God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It cries out for justice because no one should take someone else's life. And the writer to the book of, uh, the writer of the Hebrews picks up this theme and says, Jesus, Jesus' blood is poured out. It's a very gory picture. Jesus' blood has been spilled. It's lying on the ground. But Jesus' blood says something else. Jesus' blood is crying out for grace. Grace upon my people. Justice on me, Father, as I come before you with my perfect life. Pour out your wrath on me on the cross. Give me justice so they can have grace. I don't ask for mercy for my clients, for my people, for my friends. Their sins are paid for by my perfect life. And I come before you with a watertight case of my perfect life. It's infallible. Because he died on our behalf as a substitution for the sins of the world. And he intercedes on our behalf. So it's the law of God, God's perfect sacrifice, Jesus his son, coming before him. And that's why verse 25 he can say, Jesus, not Melchizedek, Jesus now is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Here's Jesus saying, look at the evidence, Father. Look at the evidence for this person that's become a Christian today. They don't deserve justice because your justice has been poured out for me. They deserve grace. They'll never meet your standard, but I did. Grant them freedom. Acquit the court. Shut the books. Because they're lost in their advocate. They're lost in Jesus. They're hidden in him. They're safe in him. Jesus has died in their place. And so he can save to the uttermost. It's a, it's a reaching word. It's a safe word. Because now Jesus stands before the Father. Anyone who comes to him is eternally safe. Because he's their lawyer. He's their great high priest who's gone in and offered himself. Not a sin offering on his behalf, but on their behalf he's offered his very life. He's got perfect credentials. There's no one like him. His CV is impeccable. And that's why he can save to the uttermost, verse 25, those who draw near to God through him. That's his work, that's his credentials. Now what difference does that make? What's the results of his work? Three things as we gather around the Lord's table after we've sung. If Jesus is your great high priest, if Jesus is your advocate, if he is your lawyer before the courtroom and throne room of God, in Jesus, you have a completely new identity. A completely new identity. 
We live in a generation that is very, very unsatisfied. It's the generation of imperfection. Alison Pearson, who wrote in the Telegraph a few weeks ago, I read it the day that Kimberly, our latest child, was born, latest and last grandchild, excuse me. I misspoke before the grandfather. There's a very interesting article that said this. We live in the generation of imperfection. No one is good enough at school. No one is good enough at sport. No one is beautiful enough. No one is physically attractive enough. No one is strong enough, and so on. It's the generation of imperfection. And so we all try and prove ourselves, whether we're a teenager or whether we're well into the retirement stage of life. We're still trying to prove ourselves through work and effort and scheming that we're good enough, that we can uh, get along well in life, that we're better than those who live next door to us. All of us are working hard and striving in that way. But if you're a Christian here this morning, and if you're not yet a Christian, it is great to see you. Jesus offers you his perfect record so we can be at rest. It's a new identity. And if you don't grab hold of Jesus, as it were, you will be holding on to something else. You will be saying, my career defines me, my uh, ability to parent defines me, my school grades define me, my pay grade defines me. And here's Jesus saying, I have met the standard that you will never meet, and you're acceptable in my sight. You're beautiful in my sight. You're worthy because of what Jesus has done. Christian friends, remember that Jesus Christ is your great high priest. Do you remember what they wear when you're reading Leviticus on Sunday afternoons in your spare time? Do you remember the uh, splendor that the great high priest wore? They had this linen garment to uh, keep the sweat off them, and then on top of them they had wonderful, rich clothing, uh, an ephod on their heads, and a uh, gold and precious gemstones on their chest that was uh, engraved on which was the name of every tribe of the children of Israel. It was something to behold. There was emeralds and diamonds and rubies and sapphires and every beautiful gemstone they could get their hands on. They were a sight to behold. The wealth of Israel was on their shoulders, literally. The entire nation represented on the breastplate. And all this wealth is a sign of the beauty with which God views you in Jesus. If you were to pick up a candle on a kind of a dark night and you saw the detail of what the high priest was wearing, it would be dazzling. The high priest was handsome, but what he was wearing was beautiful. That's the point. Incredibly skilled, artistic um, craftsmanship. And here is God saying, your name is written on my chest. Or to quote another hymn, your names are graven on his hand. You have a new identity, and so you can be at peace. You are beautiful because Jesus is altogether lovely. You are valued because Jesus is the ultimate one who should be valued. When God looks at Jesus, he sees you in him, and so you are safe and secure. There's nothing left to prove. There's everything to appreciate. When he sees you, when you doubt your external beauty, God looks at you on the inside, and he sees you as altogether lovely because of Jesus. He's your great high priest, and he stands with your name before his Father engraved over his heart. All those jewels are just a way of getting across that God looks at you 
through Jesus and in Jesus and covered in his righteousness. And he sees someone who's beautiful to him. And you're the apple of his eye because Jesus is. If you see that, if I saw that more, then all these little courts, the courtroom of the playground, the courtroom of academic success, the courtroom of uh, how much retirement funds you have, the courtroom of whether you've been a good dad or not, or a good mum or not, all those courtrooms where we seek to get a good record but we so often fail, we will be seen and understand that actually in the courtroom that really counts, we have the verdict that only God can give to us in Jesus. And there is security. Friends, let me remind you of that. God looks at you in Jesus and he sees someone who's altogether lovely because Jesus is precious to him. Number two, you get a total clean slate of all the guilt that you have. A clean slate of all the guilt in your past. Wouldn't you love that? If somebody had a video camera of everything you've ever done, a tape recorder of everything you've ever said, an infallible web record of everything you've ever watched online, I don't know how you kind of resonate with each one of those pictures, but we all have a different way to remember and dredge back from our past things that we would love to erase and forget. And at that point, you have a choice. You can either say, well, I've had a good month. I'm going to go before the bar of God's standard myself. I've had a really good week this week. <coughs> but we know that if you dredge back far enough, there's too much muck for us to deal with. Can I encourage you to remember that Jesus is your great high priest? He's my great high priest. Don't you dare try to be your own lawyer because you're never good enough. You're never articulate enough. Your case is not strong enough. Your month hasn't been good enough. But his has been. And he's lived a perfect life. And he's lived a sufficient death. And he stands on your behalf before the only court that counts. What about if we were to sing a hymn that said these words? Should all the hosts of death and powers of hell unknown put their most dreadful forms of rage and malice on, I shall be safe, for Christ displays superior power and guardian grace. Do you believe that? That you are safe and that your guilt can be dealt with and has been dealt with at the cross of Jesus. Leave it there. Don't pick it up again. Don't try and represent yourself before God with your record because it will never be good enough. But Christ is number three. Not only is it a new identity, and not only is it dealing with guilt, it gives you complete courage. Look at verse 25 again with me, please. It all comes from this. Why can you have complete courage? Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, to the uttermost, absolutely, those who come to God through him. Because... He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus lives now for this purpose. This is mind-blowing if we grasp this. He lives for this purpose. That means here in Emmanuel Epson, we could, if we grasp this a little bit more today, we could be a church that is more courageous. It should give us complete courage. If we grasp this, I thought of this only this morning, we could have that ready mix that only the gospel gives of humility and boldness. If uh, you're humble and you're not bold, if you're humble and you're not bold, it's because you're thinking about your sin too much. Woe is me. You've forgotten your status, Christian friend, that your sins have been paid for. They've been done away with. That's if you're humble and not bold. But if you flip it the other way around and say, actually, I'm really bold, but I'm not humble, it's because you've forgotten 
how much of a debt you owe to your king, King Jesus. You think too highly of yourself. But in the gospel, and if we grasp this and see Jesus Christ as our advocate, as our lawyer, Jesus Christ is interceding for us right now, we will have this great mix of boldness with humility and humility with boldness so that we can share this great news with other people. Why do I struggle to do this, even at a chip shop on a Saturday night? Because actually I want the verdict from an earthly court. And here is the verdict from the heavenly court, which is the only one that matters. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, can I just say one sentence to you? If you don't know yet that Christianity is true, if you're not sure that Jesus died for the sins of the world and now intercedes for you and, and was raised on the third day, I don't know if you believe this or not, but why would you not want to believe this to be true? And it's my humble assertion and the proclamation of the Bible that this is not something to just believe that you wish it were true, but it is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Those words seem so, so small for something so great that right now, Jesus is busy praying on our behalf, living on our behalf. And as the wounds he carries, even in heaven, shout forgiveness for us and grace for us. Help us as we sing now in response to this wonderful truth, to sing with hearts full of joy and to grasp these words, even through words of song. And as we gather around the Lord's table shortly, that we've never grasped before. Amen.